Let us pray. O God, with all majesty, and with the shades of glory we see, as we have just heard it sung, the King of the Apocalypse, chapter 19, who on his white stallion shall yet ride one day back to this earth. And our hearts exclaim with a choir, Please, Jesus, ride on, ride on. Not yet. We are still here. Billions of children yet to meet this King. Not yet, Jesus. But ride in now into our minds. Ride into our hearts. And bring a word, Holy God. Bring a word for the journey we cannot stop now. The journey has already commenced. Bring a word, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. For nearly a hundred hours now, our television screens have been rewinding and replaying all the numbing shock, all the wrenching emotion, all the suffering pain of Tuesday's terror in New York City, in Washington, D.C., in Somerset, Pennsylvania, in these United States of America. And I am certain that there is not a heart here that has not blended its tears with those who have unashamedly and sometimes uncontrollably wept in front of the cameras of our nation. I was at my boy's apartment, Kirk's apartment, Thursday night, and I don't know what channel he had it tuned to, but I tell you what, they were, they were just lined up, and the reporter with a microphone shoved in their faces, grown men and women, young adults, each of them holding a color photograph with a name printed or scribbled atop. And when each turn would come, invariably, there would be an eruption of pain and sobbing. And I, I don't know how that reporter just stood there, one after the other after the next. Our own president, we have seen him on national television choke up. Day and night, these past 100 hours. And in these 100 hours, already the nation is scrambling. What have we learned? Surely the community of Christ is scrambling. What shall we learn? What have we learned? I've been, as you, I've been in the pain and the, the, the utter uncertainty and the horror, horror of this tragedy, I've been asking. You know, one thing, just it seems to come to the surface. And we have surely learned this, have we not? We have learned that within a matter of seconds, diabolically coordinated, simultaneous split seconds in a matter of seconds, life as we know it, can be irreparably and forever changed. Gone. Gone. You can't go past... You can't get past Tuesday, 8.45 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You cannot ever go back. It's gone. Irrevocably altered. 
And has it struck you as well that the, the events and the conditions we once thought utterly impossible or at best implausible or improbable, we now know that unthought of events can now be set upon an irreversible course and no one and no thing can stop them. Nobody. In this hour of national grief for thousands upon thousands of missing and presumed dead, how immense the loss and how bitter the lessons. So what shall we say, we who gather and worship today? I, I, I think, I subscribe to the South Bend Tribune and I think, and I've stared at this front page. This is the front page, if we can pull the camera in on it. This is the front page of the South Bend Tribune announcing this horrific moment. You know, I've stared at this picture, the Twin Towers going up in flame. And as I've looked at this, you know, I'm, I must say, there isn't a Christian in the world, there isn't a Christian who, in looking at this photograph, is not confronted with ten compelling realities anywhere in the world. We face these ten realities now, and I'd like to put the realities on the screen. Can't linger with them, but they're here. You're going to have to face them. I must face them. The first two come as a couplet. The two realities of divine love and human hate. How can we not, how can we not wrestle with those realities? Compelling realities. Divine love, human hate. The next come as a threesome. The character of God. The salvation of the world. The state of the church. You cannot help but ask questions about these three. The next come as a twosome again. What shall we do with vengeance and retribution as Christians? And what about forgiveness and pardon? How shall we respond? There another, there's another couplet. These two come together. They do, do they not? The end of the world and the second coming of Christ. How can the Christian community sidestep those compelling realities? And there is a final reality. It's number 10. I want to put it on the screen for you here. The human inability to solve our deepest problems. Just listen to the commentators. I want to tell you about an American author. A hundred years ago, an American author, rather prolific, I would say, was in New York City, happened to be in the Big Apple. That night, in the middle of the night, this author awakened. And when the author awakened, a pen was found and some words were written. An American author. Let me read these words to you. On one occasion, when in New York City I was in the night season, called upon to behold buildings rising story after story toward heaven, these buildings were warranted to be fireproof. The scene the next passed before me was an alarm of fire. Men looked at the lofty and supposedly fireproof buildings and said, they are perfectly safe, but these buildings were consumed as if made of pitch. The fire engines could do nothing to stay the destruction. The firemen were unable to operate the engines. And then the American writer wrote, there are not many even among educators and statesmen who comprehend the causes that underline the present state of society. Those who hold the reins of government are not able to solve the problem of moral corruption. They are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis. The Scriptures so describe the condition of the world just before Christ's second coming. I say the human ability to solve our deepest problems. How can the community of Christ not recognize that compelling reality? Ladies and gentlemen, we gather today with those ten realities 
about life henceforth on this planet. And the commentators, oh mercy, they have, to a man and woman, they have told us, you'll never see it the same. It's, it's gone. Never again. It is fitting that we have gathered today in the presence of God. I don't know about you, when we sang that, a mighty fortress is our God. I said, oh, Father, you have to be the one to have some sort of response in the midst of our crisis. I know, folks, if you're like me, we have come today with more questions than we have answers. Let's just be honest. But surely the most pressing question today is, is there any word from God? Open your Bible with me, please, this morning, 100 hours later. Open your Bible to the ancient prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26. I'd like you to find Isaiah 26. While you're finding it, I must relate to you an incident that came from ancient China. I want to share this with you today. Isaiah 26, you're finding it, and then just keep it open on your lap. We'll turn to it in just a moment. But first, let me relate to you the incident. Long ago, a group of poor Chinese settlers came upon a sprawling field of valley floor strategically lying between the sloping hills of a mountain and the shoreline of the China Sea. It's a flatland of earth between the mountain and the sea. Perfect, perfect for a farmland. Suitable for planting and harvesting rice. This will be where we shall live, they decided. And so they hurried up the mountain slope, finding a flat, rocky promontory. They built their little village on the side of the mountain. Now they could look down below to the valley that would soon grow their rice. And out to the distance they could see the sea, the China Sea. And at long last for this band of settlers, life began to harvest for them, as it were, new promise and new hope. One late summer's afternoon, when most of the men and most of the villagers, in fact, had tracked back down the slope, down to the farmland below, one of the women who remained in the village, remained behind, happened to glance up from her work and squinted toward the sea. Her eyes first followed the shoreline, and then as her squint narrowed, she moved to the distant sea horizon. And then it was that out on that distant horizon, with ominous fear, she realizes there is approaching a massive wall of water that their neighbors, the Japanese, have always called a tsunami, a tidal wave. She sees it in the distance. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to make the calculation that that incoming, approaching tsunami, when it hits the shore, will obliterate everything in their valley. All the villagers down below. Panic. Her heart freezes. She screams to the few who have remained in the village, and they come and stand behind her. They see the impending doom. They stand atop the rock. They wave. They yell. They holler. They cry. And not a sound reaches the valley. It is clear as they stare that with this racing tsunami, there can be no time for the few of them to stumble down the rocky slope to get the others and make it. Nobody will make it back. They have to get the attention Instantly, or all will be lost, and it quickly 
became apparent that they needed something catastrophic to arouse their endangered families below. The woman and her companions knew what they must do. It would be a terrible price to pay. But if the doomed villagers were to be saved, the price must be paid. And so quickly, seizing firebrands from their cooking fires, they strode over to their thatched-roofed huts and set to fire their own homes. One by one, the houses of the mountainside village erupted in orange flames and billowing black smoke. And one by one, the bent-over heads of the villagers below jerked upward, saw the pluming smoke arising from their village, and with adrenaline pumping in every cell of their bodies, that entire valley floor raced back up the mountain to save their village. When in panting fatigue, they finally arrived above... They were met by the woman and their neighbors who solemnly pointed back to the sea. They turned and in shock watched this roaring wall of water obliterate the very farmland they had moments before been harvesting. You see, it took something catastrophic to warn of an even greater destruction impending. Open your Bible, please. The ancient prophet Isaiah, chapter 26. Those of you watching on television, we'll put the words for you on the screen. Isaiah, chapter 26. Just two verses. Verse 8 and then verse 9. I'm reading in the New Revised Standard Version. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the soul's desire. Verse 9, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. When your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness, which being interpreted means when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn the way to safety and salvation. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, there are desperate times when it takes something catastrophic to warn of an even greater impending destruction. What are you suggesting, Dwight? What are you saying, man? Are you suggesting that those hijackers were some sort of, on some sort of divine mission that, that Almighty God sent them as a judgment against this nation? I am not. I am absolutely not. Only twisted human thinking could ever seek to attribute the cause of this national crisis to the loving God and Father of humankind. Jesus was absolutely right when He intoned an enemy. I tell you who did this. An enemy hath done this. The old King James reads... Not an enemy, by the way, not an enemy across the seas, but an enemy across the chasms of time. That's our enemy today, a fallen archangel. Once went by the name Lucifer, son of the morning, and then they called him Satan, and then they called him that old serpent called the devil. These 100 hours later, let credit be given where credit is due. It is an enemy, and we know his name. In the words of the mighty apocalypse, in fact, let's put this... Let's put this on the screen. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. Woe to the earth and the sea 
For the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows. Oh, yes, he does. He knows that his time is short. From the very beginning, the devil has known that his time is short. A brief span of insanity on the radar screen of eternity. From the very beginning, come on guys, from the very beginning in the untouched and unmolested Garden of Eden, this dark and fallen archangel has hurled his war, not just against heaven, he has hurled it against earth itself. We know. And as a result, you and I, with our private suffering in New York City, in Washington, D.C., and the world today all suffer. I tell you what, that much the commentators, they may, they may not have been right with every prognostication that we've been hearing, but I tell you that much they were, they were right. You saw it in three-inch headlines, you read it, you heard it. We are in a war. We are in a war. Let it be crystal clear this morning. But, please... And I know that this cosmopolitan community will never make this mistake. Let it be clear that our war, that this war is not against the Arabs. When we put 104 proud flags towering about our university mall, some of those flags belong to Arab nations because there are errant Arab students here. We are not at war against the Arabs. We are not at war against Islam. We have in this community one of the most famous members of the Islamic faith. He's our dear neighbor, Muhammad Ali. This is not a war against Islam. By the way, this is not a war against foreigners at all. We, the inhabitants of this earth, are in a war caught in the crosshairs and crossfire of a cosmic war whose dimensions are truly universal. Look at this. This is Revelation, same chapter, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. On Tuesday, ladies and gentlemen, they, the, devils at, the devil and his angels, as it were, declared war all over again with the entire human race. We're in a war. We're caught in the crosshairs and crossfire of a cosmic war for the allegiance and loyalty of every human being. That's the war. That's the war. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> uh, if, if, if that was the war, then where was God on Tuesday? Is He on our side? Where was God on Tuesday? I'll tell you where God was on Tuesday. He was in the same place He was on that fateful Friday, mantled in the darkness of Calvary, standing beside His Son as He died all alone, just as thousands upon thousands of New Yorkers died in the darkness, but not all alone. The same heartbroken Father who stood beside Calvary stands beside the dying in those shadows. The Father who stood in the mantled dust and exploding fire of Tuesday's diabolical attack is the same God of Calvary. And by the way, Calvary is proof that God always stands by the side of the victim. Always. But I remind you, so committed is God to our human freedom of choice, get this, that He actually allows, 
He allows our choices. In this case, the free choices of a small band of evil men, He allows our choices to be carried out sometimes as it was in this case. Choices carried out to their destructive and tragic ends. Of course, God could have made the entire human race a race of robots and we would just parrot back to Him our love and allegiance. But divine love is thirsty for a love that is spontaneously and freely returned. And that's why God, the God who made us, made us not only with the right to say yes to Him, He made us with the right to say no. It's that precious right to say no that reaps the harvest we see. A band of men Tuesday said no, and a hundred hours later, we are a nation in mourning. Mourning just as the Father mourned beside the cross of His dying Son. Jesus, by the way, who also died to secure for us the right to say yes to Him and no to the enemy, no to fallen Lucifer. My friends, <clears throat> I hope this goes without saying in a Christian community such as this. But let us not lay the charges for this awful Tuesday at the feet of the God of Good Friday. For those feet today, I remind you, are still nail-scarred. And those very nail-scarred feet came striding out of that tomb on Sunday, thus earning the right for God to forever have the last word. He's going to have the last word. The last word has not been heard. The final headline will be written by the God of the universe. Mark the words of Holy Scripture. The final headline, we can write all we wish here, but the last headline in earth's history will be written by Almighty God Himself. That God who is soon to return to this civilization. The victim of Calvary, now returning as the King on the white horse. Right on, King Jesus. Right on, have the last word we beg of you. And soon, and very soon, please. But let us for one last moment return to Isaiah 26. It's still open there on your lap. Read it with me again, those two verses. Verse 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name... And your renown are the soul's desire. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. I want you to see how that last verse ends in the New Living Translation. Let's put it up on the screen. For only when your judgments are in the earth will people turn from wickedness and do what is right. Because you see, my friends, there come desperate times when it takes something catastrophic to get our attention and warn of an even greater destruction impending, just like the Chinese villagers. Could it be that we too, and by the way, from henceforth, I'm not thinking of our nation now at all. We're just talking to each other right now. Could it be that we too, you and I, Play and study and labor, utterly oblivious to the impending disaster that is about to come on this earth? 
Could it be that on the distant horizon there is an approaching, potentially imminent cataclysm that will destroy all the earth and only one whose perspective is high above can see it, can know it? Could it be? Could it be that what we hear then, and I'm not talking about them out there, I'm talking about you and me in here. Could it be that what we hear then above the din and noise of this national calamity is the crying, pleading voice of one who desperately now seeks to secure our attention, to awaken us from our oblivious stupor, to warn us of an impending end? Could it be? That the God who is not willing that any should perish is also not willing to let this insanity go on until all have perished? Could it be that there is one in this universe, get this, who has essentially set fire to his own house? This isn't your house. This earth is not my house. Setting fire to his own house? To somehow get us to raise our eyes, to stand up and look that our redemption is drawing nigh. Could it be that the houses that burn on the side of the global mountain are but a desperate and passionate cry? Look to me. Quick. God's 911 call. To us. You know, for the last 100 hours, we've been thinking it the other way. Oh God, 911, 911, 911, 911. And by the way, God has heard every one of those 911 calls, even from beneath the rubble. God has heard every one of those 911 calls. He stands there. But could it be that in fact, right now, what matters for you and me is that the paradigm is reversed. And the 911 call is not from earth to heaven. The 911 call is from heaven to earth. Wake up. I'm dialing your number. Wake up. There is a wall of destruction that is racing toward your life. Wake up. Wake up. Isaiah 26, verse 9. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. It is no wonder, my friends, that God cries out on just a few pages later. Look at this, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Same God crying out, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to me. Turn to me. As if He would say to us, Turn to me. No, no, turn away from that. Turn away. I'm speaking to a community of faith that already believes. Could it be He's saying... Turn away from that. I don't know what the that is in your life. I know what the that is in my life. Turn away from that. Turn away from it. And turn to me. Why would you die? Turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Be saved. Turn. Hey, 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 hey. Turn from that. And turn to me. Turn to me. Turn to me now. Do you understand?
Do you understand? Turn to me now. I tell you what, my friend, I don't know what has captured and distracted your attention of late, but whatever it is, surely now you know that there can be but one gaze that will save you, that will save you in the end. Turn to me. Turn to me. Whatever it is you stare at, take your eyes off and turn to me. I received an email this week. I want to close with this. Actually shared with me by my friends Ben and Susan Oliver. It's from their boy in Jerusalem. Isaac Oliver happens to be a young friend of mine. He's a student of Andrews University who is taking studies abroad at a Hebrew university in Jerusalem. He sent his parents an email right after the disaster. And so I want to close by reading to you a few lines. I have the parents' permission to read a few lines from Isaac's email from Jerusalem on Wednesday, September 12th. All right? This is just to say how things have been going on here since yesterday. Reactions have been very different throughout Israel. Today, a lot of students did not show up to class. New York is a city with over two million Jews, so there are many relatives and friends that are related to the students here. As in every bombing that has happened before, phone lines between USA and Israel are so busy you can't even make a phone call. Many Arabs have died too in the various bombings in the States, according to some of my Arab friends. Some of my Arab friends have said they're worried of what is lying in the future, that if the terrorists were Arabs, this will be bad news for the Arab world. They hope for peace, as do we all. Oh, today in class, we sang... May peace come upon us. And then, Salam, which is Arabic for Shalom. Salam aleinu vehacho haolam. Peace on us and all the world. Salam. The teacher said that when problems like this happen here, they say to themselves, Sheyavo Hamashiach. May Messiah come, because when He comes, there will be peace. P.S. P.S. I now vividly remember the words of the Air Force officer giving us a tour at the Pentagon this summer. I remember thinking at the time how funny it was that my mother was worried about her safety during that visit. I laughed when mother asked him if we were safe in the Pentagon. With that, the military officer jerked around and smiled. Ma'am, you are in the safest place in the world. And then Oliver ends, kind of sounds like the story of the Titanic all over again. Ladies and gentlemen, the safest place in the world is not a place. It is a person. It is a person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to me, he says. Please, turn from that. Turn from that. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. I am the safest place to whom you can flee. Turn to me. Turn to me. I tell you what, if ever 
there were a right time to turn to Him. It occurs to me, it probably is right now. Let us pray. Oh God, we hear the words passionate and pleading. Turn to me. Turn to me and be saved. And in that invitation, something down deep in our hearts tells us that is the only security and safety we have left. And so, O oh God, I humbly pray for every man and woman, every young adult, every one of us in the shadow of now these horrific memories. O oh God, whatever has captured our gaze and turned our attention, please, please keep dialing those numbers. Get through to us. Get through to us just now. Until that day when we shall see Him riding back. Oh God, may not one head bowed and one heart lifted up be turned away looking elsewhere. At that moment, turn to me, and so we shall, and we do, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.